A good evening and a warm welcome to all witches, weirdos, goblins and ghouls you are listening to the London Horror Society podcast. This is the podcast where we chat to people working across the genre, whether they be established or emerging, in front of or behind the camera, from first assistant director to final girl. Without any further ado, grab yourself a glass of Chianti, sit back, relax, enjoy. Thanks for everybody who tuned in to episode one last week. Our guest this week is filmmaker and podcaster Nick Taylor, host of the Nick Taylor Horror Show. Uh, we get into all kinds of things. We talk about the podcast, a little bit of VR horror filmmaking, um, but also getting on set experience and just putting yourself out there. Um, so this interview is just myself this week. Um, moving forward, there are weeks where you may notice that sometimes it's just Chris, sometimes it's just me, sometimes it's both Chris and I. And this could just be down to availability. Um, sometimes Chris is available and I'm not and vice versa. Uh, so yeah, if uh, if you jump into any episodes in the future and you th- and it's just one of us, don't worry. It's uh, We're still both working on the podcast together. We're all good. We haven't fallen out or anything. As ever, you can find all relevant links to the show and London Horror Society in the show notes below. Uh, as well as links to Nick Taylor's socials. Um, I would suggest giving him a follow and getting onto his podcast. But until then, uh, here is my chat with Nick Taylor. How did you get into horror? I, how do I get into horror? I've always been a really big fan ever since I was a kid. Um, always was drawn to it. I remember seeing Beetlejuice at like age four and it was like my own soul was shown to me, like the sensibility and the attitude and the vision of that movie. I identified with so, so much. And um, that was for me, the perfect gateway horror. I always had kind of an edgy sense of humor, especially as a child. And it would get me into trouble from time to time. And that movie, the rudeness of it and the vision of it and, the heart of it, in addition to just how fun and bonkers it is. Again, for me, it, like that movie showed me my own soul. I was like four years old and I would get in trouble with it. Like um, I had a little Lego that I would pretend to be Beetlejuice in school and I would go, nice fucking model at four years old. <laughs> and um, I was sent to the bathroom for like an hour because that's bathroom talk. But in any case, so I think that kind of started me off and then I would get in my hand, whatever, as many PG or PG-13 horror movies I could get my hand on, hands on, I would. And, and uh, yeah, it just escalated as I got older, started seeing like the Halloween movies, the Nightmare on Elm Street movies. And it worried my parents a little. I'm sure a lot of horror fans can relate to parents being like a little concerned. Mm-hmm. But, um, but then, you know, I found out that like horror fans and horror filmmakers are typically really sweet and nice and genuinely good people. And they're drawn to the darkness because they don't have much real darkness in them that it's such a high for them to see a horror movie because it's completely contrast to how they feel on a regular basis. So that was totally me. I would get such a rush out of being scared. I would get nightmares. But for me, a nightmare was awesome because it was like a, a, a horror movie that I starred in. You know, it was like a first person sort of virtual reality horror movie that I get to star in. So I actually enjoyed nightmares despite being afraid of them, but was always into dark stuff. Um, 
another formidable thing. There was a show called Sightings that not a lot of people know about that played in America. And Sightings was actually a precursor for the X-Files. Sightings was on for a few years and every single week, it was basically, it was presented, it was like Rescue 911, but a supernatural version of that. I don't know if that that was on in the UK, but um, it was basically every single week, there was a different concept. So they would do an episode on Bigfoot and then an episode on UFOs, an episode on ghosts, an episode on poltergeist, an episode on demonic possession. And they would interview people who had actual experiences and they would do these dramatizations. So every single week I had something different to be afraid of. One week I was afraid of aliens. Another week I was afraid of ghosts. Another week I was afraid. Demonic possession was by far the scariest thing. So I think I just was really close to, in, in my childhood, had a lot of really colorful nightmares and loved the movies and enjoyed being scared to a certain degree. It was a rush. So that, I mean, that started it. But in terms of being involved in horror, it didn't come until later that I actually thought that I, I could and should do something with it. I started writing for Dread Central not that long ago um, when I really started to take steps towards this. Um, in any sort of a professional capacity. Started writing for Jan Central. Basically approached them to, hey, I love your, your publication. I would love to write for you for free. And I want to interview filmmakers, horror filmmakers about their process and all of that. So they said yes. And then that turned into the podcast. Um, and then through the podcast, I met a number of people, who, some of which were producers and struck up some friendships. And um, the podcast was a big door opener and then started producing um, only a few years ago. So yeah, that's basically the long and short of it. I certainly get the feeling of, um, you know, kind of that rush of being scared, but I think you might be the first person I've ever heard say that they've enjoyed their nightmares, but you put a kind of romantic spin on it, which is kind of nice. Um, <laughs> so one of my questions was going to be like, what was your route into filmmaking, which you've just touched on, but yeah. Was, was before you started writing for Dread Central and gotten connected with different horror filmmakers, was there any kind of urge to step step kind of that side of the camera? Or had yeah. it always been, you know, more just a viewing experience for you? No, I always wanted to do something with it. I mean, it was that kid who was making little movies in the backyard. I made a zombie movie with a friend where my mom actually cuts my head off with a broom. I wish to God I could find it. I got to sort through old videos, but I, I put ER, I had a mask, like a zombie mask, and I put it on, I filled it with a towel, and then I filled that with like all of this pink yarn that looked like entrails coming out of the head. And I put, I had like figured out special effects. I put it on top of my, I tucked my head into my shirt and had that on top of my head and had my mom swing a broom to cut my head off. <laughs> um, and then, yeah, I was doing all sorts of, like had goofy little horror movies in the backyard whenever I could, whenever I could get my hands on a camera. I had had my dad. My dad was my first DP. He was he would film them first. Then I learned how to use a camera. Would do little stop motion movies. Somehow didn't finish many of them. That's like a common thread with people who like kids who make like little movies is they usually don't finish them. But in any case, that I yeah I always had the inclination. I started working on a zombie. Um, virtual reality concept years ago and got got down the road with it but it it got to be too expensive and too complicated i put a lot of work into it and there's a there's a 
I'm actually in talks with kind of resurrecting it because when I was working on it, virtual reality was not as ubiquitous as it is now. This was maybe mm-hmm. about four years ago was the last time I really did any work on it. Um, I just basically put it down to work on other things, but um, it was just getting yeah too expensive and complicated. And kind of, I mean, I don't mean to pat myself on the shoulder, but it was kind of like ahead of its time. Like the things I wanted to do, the technology just wasn't out there. And if it was, it was expensive. Well, we were trying to put real people into a VR world through filming techniques and stuff like that. Um, there's a little more to it than that. But um, yeah, I'm actually ta- in talks with people about bringing that back. So be on the lookout. But uh, so that for years basically was an outlet. I was writing that. I was mm-hmm. filming. I was filming it. I was working on solutions for it. And, it, you know, it still has not seen the light of day. But I learned a lot. It forced me to learn a lot about, you know, cameras and filmmaking and writing and collaboration and special effects and stuff like that. So it was a formidable experience for sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. Did you gain experience that then informed the kind of creative approach to it? So like, did you go back and kind of like rehash things to kind of fit what you'd learned or? Yeah, a little bit. I mean, I definitely, um, it was something new and different. It wasn't just a movie. It involved video games. It involved filming. So it was experience that doesn't entirely directly relate to anything else. But it did. I did learn how to run a set because I did some shoots in some cases with a bunch of other people with complicated elements to it. Um, yeah. Learn how to you know coordinate certain things. And uh, we did a lot of special effects on it too. Some really cool zombie effects. So got into that world pretty heavily. Um, And uh, yeah, I mean, I I did learn some things that I was able to apply later on, but I think it just gave me an outlet, which uh, I'm grateful for looking back because for the longest time, I just, I wanted to, I was working in corporate America and was just really wanting to do something film related or horror related. And even though it hasn't taken a lot of day yet, it gave me hope to keep yeah. you know going even though you know a lot went into it and it's it's not out still but give it time who knows maybe now's the time now that you know the oculus rift is is as uh uncomplicated as it is when i was doing it you had to be tethered to the computer and sure. it wasn't even that long ago but yeah. uh yeah it gave me an outlet and it forced me to learn a bunch of things and it just made me feel like i was progressing at the time so that i think that was just good for my morale you know because i think it's very easy to be stuck in a job not knowing how you're going to do anything filmmaking related yeah um and then but but this gave me a shred of hope that i could do something eventually so yeah if, oh man i relate no to that big time good yeah, right. it's funny that you mentioned the uh, that kind of experiential VR projects because we were actually talking, you know, me and a group of people from the LHS did like an online social and we were talking about those kinds of um, uh, like the original like 13 ghosts. Um, oh, yeah. With the 3D glasses and things like that. And, you know, we we're talking about like what kind of elements can you can you add into films these days that make them kind of more interesting that aren't just mm. a gimmick and yeah we're kind yeah. of wrecking our brains a bit and you know someone did say like yeah something that's kind of more being on more than just that axis like uh like rather than just looking at a screen you can kind of in, in get into that vr side of things which is um yeah i mean really what i think it is in the context of horror, it is uncharted horror territory. Because when yeah. you look at horror movies, 
just about everything's been done. The movies that are coming out, there's just a lot of them are great and all, mm. but a lot of the scares, they've been done. Like the jump scares have been done. Yes, we're coming up with like, you know, more interesting ways to to kill or dismember a human body. And that's always interesting to see and like songs like that. But sure. generally speaking, so much has been done. There hasn't been much that's really broken new ground in terms yeah. of fright suspense and all of that but vr you're in the fucking world i can curse on those right oh yeah yeah go for it yeah all right good um you're you're in it and there's so much to be done with messing with people's sense of reality mm. um and i feel like we, we have been i feel like horror is probably the most exciting frontier in terms of vr and that's something i, I really want to dig into more and that's what i was doing the zombie experience but um yeah your sensory perception it's weird you're you're your eyes kind of build, your mind believes what you're seeing in VR, even though your eyes yeah. don't really like, I don't know if you played the plank experience. Like I know I'm not yeah. going to fall a yeah. hundred stories or whatever, but my brain thinks I will. Yeah. And yeah. like you jump off that plank, your heart jumps, even though you know full well, it's not real. It's you, your body doesn't know the difference. And that I think is super exciting from a VR perspective. And it's interesting, isn't it? Because I saw another experiment where someone had a fake hand and their actual mm -hmm. hand was kind of behind a screen. And there was an experiment where they were touching both hands with a ruler and the, the person's brain was kind of tricking itself into thinking that the rubber hand was their hand. Whoa. And they hit it with a hammer and they kind of had that reaction. But it, the human brain is kind of interesting in that way in that it thinks this is happening, even though the same brain knows that that isn't happening. Do you know what I mean? The brain itself is kind of arguing with itself or kind of having this. Um, For sure. Yeah. Um, so I think that's something that could definitely be uh, utilized effectively. Um, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, like I, um, I also I don't want to uh, sound like I'm psychoanalyzing you, but. Oh, please. Um, with the VR thing, is that a kind of. You know, is this year kind of coming to terms with your dreams that you had as a kid? Because you said you enjoyed them. Like, I wonder if there's well, anything. Uh... <laughs> possible. It's possible. Yeah, it's, it's possible. Possibility of that. Yeah, wanting to recreate, you know, yeah. living nightmares. But uh, yeah, maybe. <laughs> Luckily, in the in the experience, you can kill the zombies, you know. Oh, well, they, but uh, yeah, but they're still scary, scary elements too, for sure. But possibly, yeah. No, maybe there's that's me working out, you know, childhood fears and stuff like that. Yeah, could be. I wouldn't <laughs> discount it. No, I mean, I think that's where a lot of people go uh, when they're kind of trying to, um, you know, uh, put a horror film together. I mean, that's where I go sometimes. Um, yeah, childhood it's, it tells you oh, yeah. so much. I feel like Aria. Nobody's doing that more than Ari Aster. Oh yeah, and no, I'm sure. Have you seen the trailer for um, Bowers Afraid? yeah it's different it's not yeah. it's more charlie kaufman you know than like mm. straight horror i mean i feel like it's it doesn't look the trailer doesn't make it look that horror centric, no. but i think it's gonna be way more psychological you know he yeah. said it's gonna be four hours which is wow like, it's like a yeah that well that's what he said who knows yeah. where it's going to transpire it's a difficult one for theater owners to swallow but uh yeah no i'm intrigued it looks like a departure for him and uh i'm, yeah. I'm excited to see what he does I'm, it's one of his filmmakers like no matter what they do i am gonna be there opening night and mm -hmm. uh yeah i think he's one of the most intriguing new filmmakers for sure definitely definitely um so 
Speaking of uh, kind of the filmmaking work that you've done so far, could you tell me a little bit about your experience with um, being a PA on Shelby Oaks? Yeah, for sure. Um, Aaron Kuntz is a friend of mine. He is one of the main producers on Shelby Oaks. And I got to a point where I started getting these opportunities to produce having had very little set experience. And I thought, I need more time on set. I need to set see how other directors work, how producers work, how people run sets. I just basically, I didn't go to film school. I didn't, I didn't do my initial due diligence. So like in my late thirties started going to stats and basically volunteering and be like, Hey, uh, I would love to work on this. I'm not above anything. I'll do whatever you need me to do. I just want to be on set all day for X many days, seven days, 10 days, whatever the case might be. I'll pay my own way. Don't mm-hmm. need to pay me. So um, just basically trying to get as much that experience as possible and just volunteering to be a PA on set. Um, and just by being there all day, every day and seeing how set is run, it just really mentally prepares you for movie making and just shows you how it all, you know, how all the pieces fit together, what G and E does and grip and electric, what, yeah. how ADs communicate with first ADs who communicate or second ADs communicate with first ADs who communicate with the director, the chain of command. It's all so important to learn. And I recommend anybody do it. Like no matter how old you are, don't be above it. You can go. Luckily, we're in this age of um, remote work. So I was still working. Now I'm still doing, you know, other work. But um, if you're working for free, you can be flexible and be like, hey, I can't work on Tuesday or hey, I need three hours off on this day or you bring your laptop. Just find a way to make it work. But that was very formidable for me just to, to be on these sets. And I'm still doing it. I got another one coming up in a few months. And um, I just think it's important to learn from other people and you meet a load of people too you meet people that you'll want to collaborate with later down the line so i highly recommend being a pa regardless of what stage you're in uh, and it's fun it's really fun it can be brutal like some of the, the sleepless nights or you'll have a schedule where it's like 4 p.m to 4 a.m you do that mm. two days in a row you get on a vampire schedule but you just you see the nuts and bolts of how films are made and you'll, you'll see what mistakes not to make. And it's just a, a very formidable learning experience. And I recommend anybody who hasn't done it, go do it. If only for 48 hours. Yeah. No, I've like done a couple of PA runner gigs. And um, yeah, I mean, they're made of tougher stuff than I am. I certainly couldn't do it for a full feature. <laughs> yeah. It um, gives you, yeah, it gives you a whole respect for the crew. And I, I didn't mention, it was really cool to observe Chris Stuckman working. I've been a big fan of his movie reviews. It's hard to find a movie critic who has your taste and sensibility. Mm-hmm. And I feel like he really has mine for the most part. Like he's into some anime stuff that I'm not really into, but when it comes to like horror and his objective opinions of other movies, um, it really mimics mine. So I, I think he's a, a wonderful film reviewer. And it was great to see him working. And the movie looked, I can't give any details away, but like it's going to be very exciting. Uh, I've seen a couple of stills. Um... Uh, around, I think they're official on IMDb and a couple of other places. And, um, you know, the way that it's lit and just the atmosphere mm-hmm. of the, of the film just looks absolutely incredible. Um, yeah. you, you know, it's going to be good when you see a picture and you go, I'm in, you know, <laughs> just because it looks yeah. that good. Um, yeah, so yeah, exactly. I'm, I'm really excited to see it. I think it's really exciting that he's kind of, um, you know, stepping behind the camera. Yeah. And it's a good script too. I got to read the script before jumping on board and it was, nice. there. it was like, it was very good. So I'm psyched yeah. to see how that turns out. 
Yeah, I mean the the Kickstarter campaign was like pretty um pretty impressive, right? I think they hit their target in yeah. not long at all. And then the stretch they goal overshot was by like a million dollars. It's incredible. Insane, right? Um yeah. but yeah, more power to them. Can you touch on something um that I just want to pick up on? Just sure. you, you said like um when you're approaching people like I'm not above this, uh, I'm not above doing that. Like, could you kind of go into a little bit of detail about like that mindset and that attitude? Yeah. Um, I mean, I feel like there's a lot of people waiting for opportunities in film. Um, and uh, yeah, I've been very blessed and very lucky to, to have some opportunities come my way. But when it came to just my own film education, you know, I knew that like nobody was going to hire me to be an associate producer or pay me to be a PA with like very little to no experience. So I had to make it worth their while by just saying, Hey, I'm here to work. I'm here to do whatever you want. You need me to do. And I was going in the gas. I was filling up gas tanks. I was cleaning things. I was just not above anything. Cause I think the experience was so critical. Um, and that that's me. That's very much where I, luckily I had a, have another job that I can pay bills with. It's very different. You know, if somebody's not in that circumstance, so I was, was lucky enough to be able to do that. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, again, I think if you can get PA work and, uh, and basically do it as an intern, uh, mm -hmm. it's just, it's difficult to get paid sometimes. Sure. It's yeah, if you're yeah. not really in the industry. So I think you mm -hmm. do need to start somewhere, but I did yeah. it strictly as, um, as an educational endeavor and sure. it proved to be a great way to meet people as well. Like other producers, other yeah. writers, other effects people, and just a group of fun people yeah. is usually horror, horror stats are filled with horror fans yeah. and you're around. I mean, it's a wonderful experience to walk around a set and be able to have an informed conversation with like nine out of 10 people about reanimator sure. two or bride of reanimator rather. So but, uh, but yeah, I mean, just to get back to your question about the, the attitude, I feel like that, that is really important mm -hmm. on a film set because the, I, you do notice that there's like a distinguished kind of, I might get in trouble with this, but like there are, I do think that there, some people do have this attitude, like you're not paying me enough to do this. And, and, and mm -hmm. in a lot of cases, I'm sure it's very valid, you know, and I, sure. I don't condone any abuse, you know, or overworking crew members or whatever. But I do think at the same time, and this is a fine line, and I think it's something that, you know, is is worthy of observation. And I don't know if I have a concrete opinion of it. I'm just essentially showing the two sides. But then there's this other sense of like, you know, the evil deads of the world, the movies that were, hey, they had no money, but the whole crew rallied together because everybody's sure. in it to win it and working overtime and probably underslept and all of that. Again, I'm not mm -hmm. condoning doing that for your crew. However... Sometimes the chips are going to be down on set and you want to be working with people who are passionate about the material and who are going to want to help you, you know, push through. But again, take these words with a grain of salt. It's a fine line no, because you don't want, you don't want to upset your crew. You can, no. you know, it's first of all wrong. It's wrong, yeah. but it's also, you can get yourself in all kinds of union trouble as well, which nobody needs. But then at the same time, you know, sometimes it's like filmmaking can be war from everything I've observed. Um, so, but yeah, I think my attitude, I knew people would say, yes, if I basically said, Hey, I'm not above anything. I don't need to be paid. I'll pay for my own accommodations and I'll pay to get out there myself. So, I mean, mm -hmm. this did cost me money, but I gained so much experience that, yeah. um, me having not gone to film school, having not worked on, you know, many sets before it was, it was important for me, you know, in my, in my, uh, 
my very individual experience. But uh, yeah, I mean, I think that that attitude, nobody's going to say no, you know, if you, if you say that, if you're like, Hey, I'm in it to win and I'm in it to help. I am not above anything. Um, mm. People will want to work with you. Like I did go to film school and it sounds like you learned more and spent less. So I think, oh, well. <laughs> I, th I think you probably got the better end of the deal there. That makes more sense. I oh, think the way I did it. Um, uh, so uh, moving on to uh, Devil's Workshop, which you, uh, sure. you're an associate producer on. Can you tell me about your experience with that in contrast to being a PA? Yeah, sure. I mean, that was, that was a great experience. My friend Chris Von Hoffman directed that. I was in some very early conversations about that and read the script and uh, really, really good script. Really just interesting, freaky, edible concept in there. And that was a great experience. We got to work with Emil Hirsch and uh yeah and and tim tim granaderos and ronna mitchell like really really fine fine actors and um yeah we were shooting in mississippi which turned out to be a great place to shoot we had a lot of crew from new orleans and uh you know really similarly really low budget i had to roll my sleeves up and just get a lot of things done and basically do a lot of pa related stuff a lot of people had to wear many hats Sure. Um, and just solve problems and refill gas tanks in certain cases. So it was relatively similar. But yeah. Uh, yeah, that was that was a great experience seeing Chris work. And I was actually in the movie as well. I'm in the first and last two minutes of the movie. So I got an act. I got a role out of it also. There was somebody who was supposed to play the part that I got. Oh, great. Did you get your yeah. SAG card for that? No, no SAG card. It was okay. uh, no. They were there was someone else who was supposed to play the role who just was flaky at the last minute. And Chris is like, "You want to do this?" And I said, "Absolutely." So, luckily, it wasn't too difficult in terms of learning lines. But uh, yeah, no, I was able to observe how he works, and that was my delivery was a little off, and he made these little teeny little adjustments. Being directed by someone, I think, can teach you a lot about directing. So, mm -hmm. regardless of how you know tiny my role was, it was cool to watch him work. Yeah. Uh, we see it from but, a yeah. different perspective, then, don't you? Um, what would what would you say is the difference between a, a producer and an associate producer? Well, I think the producers are way more hands on from beginning to end. I didn't really get involved with Devil's Workshop until like later down the line, mm -hmm. and I didn't do nearly as much work as like Gino and Joe and Zach, who were some of my other producing partners, like they were involved in so many more things. So I was basically there on set solving problems and then working after the movie came out. Um, I helped bring on a few people. So I helped like bring on a few key crew members, mm -hmm. but I didn't do nearly as much work as those other guys. Sure. Um, so that was able to see like, okay, in my case, and I know there's a number of... I think term, the producer terms are very, uh, you know, loose. Like there's people mm. who get producing credits who clearly didn't do as much work as some <laughs> of the other producers yeah. do. So it's a term to be taken with a grain of salt. But I, in my experience, it was like I came in to help the producers about two-thirds of the way in. Mm -hmm. So I was basically serving the other, you know, producers and serving the movie, but I wasn't as comprehensively involved from like day one, the way the other sure. guys were. And I wasn't dealing with unions and paperwork as much as them. Like they were leading the charge on all of these different things. And DJ, sure. I forgot to mention DJ, who's one of the other producers. Um, yeah, what those guys did and, and the length of time they worked on it, like they really, you know, were, were the structure of the movie, whereas I, I came in and filled in a number of gaps 
and stuff mm-hmm. like that. And then helped with marketing after the movie had come out. So, um, yeah, so I basically was working for the producers in a way. I suppose that's a way to distinguish the difference between producer and associate producer. In my sure. case, anyway. Again, it's different yeah. for everybody in every movie, but that was it for me. Sure. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Yeah. It's different no matter who you talk to. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, I guess that's the thing. Um, but, yeah, it's kind of touch on what you said about, you know, some people getting credited as producers. Like, you see, like, Brad Pitt in the credits for something, and you're like, yeah, but was he up until two o'clock trying to make sure the call sheet goes out and like, you know, make, making sure that everybody's right. got everything they need and stuff like, right, you know, right. well, he's got his production company, Plan B Productions. Yeah, you know, he, yeah. He, he brings things to fruition. Yeah. I think now, did he do Shantaram? No, I don't think he did in the end. You know, it doesn't matter. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'm just going to switch gears and just chat about uh, ask you about the podcast a little if that's okay. Yeah, sure. Great. Um, so you touched on kind of how the podcast came about a little bit earlier, writing with uh, Dread Central. What was the kind of mission? Like, what do you kind of aim for with every podcast? I think a few things. I mean, to reiterate, I didn't go to film school. And I've heard mixed reviews from people who have gone to film school in terms of how effective it was for their filmmaking. And these are people who actually have made films. Um, so, I mean, I've heard a number of arguments. On one case, it does give you a good cinema education. You watch a shitload of movies and you see them through lenses that you never would have, which sure. I think is very valuable. And I regret not going to film school. I mean, I, it is a real regret that I don't live with. Um, but um, so I don't mean to knock it. But again, having not gone to film school, you know, I've heard that even people who have gone to film school didn't really prepare them for making films. I mean, it does to a certain degree. You learn about lenses and you know, mm-hmm. how certain things work and operate, but it doesn't prepare you for the rejection, doesn't prepare you for a lot of nuts and bolts or when your crew turns against you or anything like that. So sure. I wanted to myself learn as much as possible from people who have actually done it because there's a phenomenon in the filmmaking, you know, guides and literature world where there's a lot of stuff written by people who haven't actually made movies and writing oh, yeah. books by people who haven't actually written screenplays. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's kind of endemic, isn't it? So, yeah, for sure. So, I mean, I, I wanted to get straight from the horse's mouth real stories and educations from people who have actually done it. And I wanted to present it for other people, too, because I wanted to, for me, I wanted the notion of making a movie, particularly growing up, just seemed so unrealistic and so out there. And so you have to, you know, it's who you know and it's such a walled garden well all of which is true but i wanted to dispel the mysticism of filmmaking words you hear some of the people and how they got their movies made um it seems so much more realistic when you hear from people who have actually done it who seem to be you know no smarter or more privileged than any of us but um yeah, so he basically wanted to dispel the notion that filmmaking was such a difficult and and pie-in-the-sky notion for people because I, I use a bunch of people I talked to who just, through their own you know sweat and effort and over years, they were able to make movies made. And then there's really interesting cases like Mitzi Perone, who did Braid. She funded her first movie with Crypto. Um, mm-hmm. So there's so many innovative approaches. And I feel like there's so much bad filmmaking advice Everybody, yeah. when I would tell people I wanted to be director, everybody would say, oh, it's really hard. It's really hard. And these mm. people never made a fucking movie in their life. Yeah, it is hard. 
but like their, their advice was, I mean, be really careful who you take advice from. Don't take advice from people who haven't done what you want to do. So that was yeah. what I wanted. It was advice from people who have done what I want to do, which is to make movies specifically horror movies. So I try to just make it all of the conversations as actionable as possible and as practical as possible. So people can listen to it and then just think, well, if you keep listening to it like week after week over it, I feel like it just subconsciously starts to dawn on you. Hey, I could make a movie or Hey, here's how to make a movie. So yeah. I think the mission is just to enable and uh, inspire and empower people to be able to make their own horror movies. Yeah. Perfect. Kind of breaking down that. I think that there's like a lot of a, a lot of it is like a mental barrier. Do you know what I mean? That's what I found For in sure. my own kind of filmmaking journey. Like just that kind of like, Oh, it's too far out of reach. I, I'm yeah. not going to be able to do this. But yeah, listening to podcasts like yours, and hopefully people will one day say the same about us, is that people will be able to, they will have that realization that like, oh, I, I can do it. And it's not out of reach. And right. it is totally doable. Um, mm -hmm. So yeah, I, I mean, your podcast has certainly had that effect on me. Um, oh, great. So, I'm glad to hear that. Yeah, I mean, like, I, I, you know, not to talk about myself too much, but like, I've been a filmmaker for, uh, you know, 10 years or so. And like, I've got hundreds of like set, you know, stays on set. And, and I just had like no confidence to be able to go out and do my own thing. Um, and, you know, just listening to your podcast, like, you know, encouraged me to get involved with like the London Horror Society and like make my short films and stuff like that. Nice. Uh, yeah. Keep writing stuff. So, um, yeah, I thank you, Nick, honestly. Oh, um, it's my pleasure. Thanks for saying that. No, no worries, man. I'm going to cut this bit out, though, just so I don't uh, seem like I'm I'll keep uh, it gushing in. too much. <laughs> um, I'll so take what, it. What, what, you know, our, our podcast is fairly similar to yours, um, you know, in terms of, like, getting advice and, like, true, real stories from people. Um, so we kind of ask about advice that people have been given. But you're a kind of um, – it's a bit of a different circumstance for you because you also ask a similar question and you have had like incredible advice from, you know, revered filmmakers. Um, right. So, it, you know, any advice from the podcast that kind of sticks out to you or something like that would be a go-to nugget of info? Um, I mean, there's, there's a common but annoying but very true and that's probably why it's annoying piece of advice and it's very cliche and everybody says it and it's just do it and it's and everybody it's like well what what am i supposed to do with that just do it like i don't have the money or the resources or whatever but the hidden nugget of truth in that is this is the notion of like just find a way none of it is ever going to be handed to you nobody's going to write you a check and james cameron talks about how Directing is constantly haranguing other people to give you an opportunity because nobody's just going to say, you know what, I've been watching you and you seem like a competent person. So here, I'd like for you to direct this. Like, it doesn't ever happen that way. Mm -hmm. So it's it, it, the job is to find a way as opposed to wait for an opportunity or wait for things to align. I mean, that was a common thread that I've seen among a lot of the people I've talked to. Or people had these big grand ideas for their first feature and they wanted something that would be like three million dollar budget and they had to find a way to do it for 50 grand or you know yeah. something like that like okay well what can you get a hold of well i can borrow this and i can max out I'm not recommending people max out credit cards but it's this notion of finding a way to doing something 
And I think it was very, this was, this was very well-worn territory for Mark Duplass and his excellent, every filmmaker should listen to, uh, it's a speech from South by Southwest a number of years ago called the cavalry is not coming. Uh, and everybody should listen to that because it's basically like, nobody's going to come help you make your film, but you, you have to essentially just find a way to make something and then maybe you make something else a little more expensive and then a little more and you basically have to leapfrog your way, but it all comes down to you. I mean, the job isn't to write something that's really good and direct something that's fantastic. It, it, it is partially, but the real job is to find to be find a way to, to, to make it happen. Um, and I feel like that's not as talked about. Just so I would say that advice. and read uh, read on writing by Stephen King. <laughs> yes, that's one thing that I've uh, that I've picked up on as well because because I, I do love that. Um, you know, touching on advice and stuff, and there is like an oversaturation uh, of advice out there. And you know, when you're kind of getting into this, um, you know, this this area, you don't know where to turn. Do you know what right. I mean? Um, that is one common thread that I've noticed from your podcast is that on writing by Stephen King. So I'm, yeah. gl I'm glad to put that in our pod as well. Uh, cool. I've <laughs> got a couple more questions for you. Um, sure. So just one more question on advice, if I may. Um, do, do you have any advice like based on your own experiences, like aside from the pod, like from, you know, anything from you being on set or the way that, you know, you've had to work with people or, um, I mean, I think I touched on it a little bit, but just observing other directors and other producers being likable is everything. And, mm. um, I, it being likable and trustworthy. I think people mm. want to work with people they like and trust and you can be super talented, but if you're like even a little bit of a prick or throw a little bit of a tantrum or you're a little difficult, there's a hundred other people who have the same capabilities as you. I mean, people will hire you largely because you're responsible, you're likable, and you're trustworthy. So yeah. I've seen that as a, a big consistent thing. And they've been, I've seen people who are considering very talented people for positions and, and roles or whatever, but they won't hire them because they're, they're either untrustworthy or they are really temperamental. Mm -hmm. or whatever the case may be. I mean, the talent element, they, they say talent is overrated, which is absolutely the truth. You have to be responsible, trustworthy, and likable, enjoyable to be breathe on set. And you have to be ready for really difficult circumstances and to not lose your cool when the chips go down on set. Those are the kind of people you want, you know, because it's warfare. Shit is always going wrong. Yeah. And there's yeah. the people who cringe and the people who fold and say, I don't get paid enough for this or... I, I, I don't like how this was handled on set and they gossip and they shit talk and whatever. And in some cases, you know, it's certainly warranted, I guess. But then there's the ones who are like, okay, what do we do? How do we do this? You know, they, they step out of what they're paid to do in order to just help the overall movie get made. And those are like how people get hired again and again and again across sure. all positions, across all crew, across mm -hmm. you know, directors, writers, whatever. You need to be enjoyable to work with. Um. So yeah, I feel like that's a big one. And um, I had an interview with Kevin Lewis and I think he touched on it. And that guy is just, I have never worked with him directly, but you can just hear in his voice that he's a guy who's reliable and wonderful to work with. And he yeah. get the movies made and sure. do, does a really great job with them. And he's having this wonderful heyday right now. And uh, yeah, but uh, yeah, I think just be trustworthy, responsible and likable uh, and hopefully talented. But yeah. those those things are so underrated, and that's that's why people get hired 
I mean, that's good advice for life. Generally, I would say for, for sure, uh, particularly for yeah. filmmaking. Yeah, um, absolutely. And uh, my my final question. So, so we've been asking every guest: Are you a witch, widow, goblin, or ghoul? But providing absolutely zero definition or context. So, Nick Taylor, are you a witch, widow, goblin, or ghoul? Oh man, I'd like to say werewolf. I'm very outdoorsy. <laughs> <laughs> That's fine, and I can transform. Um, but yeah, I don't know if I'm a witch. Oh, man, a little, maybe a little bit of a weirdo. Not much of a ghoul. I feel like they're, you know, not the best people. Um, goblin was another one. I don't know the personality type of a goblin. If I can go with werewolf, I'll go with werewolf. So then, well, we'll let you break the rules. It's fine. Appreciate uh, it. Yeah. Huge thank you to Nick for being so generous with his time. Um, it was really, really great to sit down with him, get get an idea of his experience and what he's got in line for the future. Uh, it seems like he's just got an amazing attitude when it comes to filmmaking and he just wants to be on set for, for the love of horror. Um, and that's beautiful. That's one thing that's just kind of ringing true with every guest that we seem to have. It's just, it's just the love of the genre and it is infectious. Uh, and I hope that you find it to be as well. Um, links below in the show notes to all of Nick's uh, relevant socials. I suggest giving them a follow. Do go and listen to his podcast, particularly if you're a horror director. Uh, but even if you're a horror fan, um, it's so good to get like a really interesting look behind the curtain and hear some incredible guests on his show. Um, it is really, really worth checking out. So I highly recommend that you do. That's all for this week, my friends. We will be back next Friday when we sit down with Vince Knight cinematographer of 2022's Wolf Manor and 2023's Winnie the Pooh, Blood and Honey. But until then, stay weird, stay spooky, keep up the good work.